Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Stephanie Dre, New York Times bestselling writer of the new novel, The Women of Chateau Lafayette. I interviewed Stephanie previously on the podcast back on episode 40. Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, The Women of Chateau Lafayette, how would you describe the novel? This novel is about three wars, three women, one world-changing legacy, and a French chateau at the heart of it all. That French chateau being the birthplace of the Marquis de Lafayette, who at the age of 19 crossed the ocean against the wishes of his king to fight in the American Revolution, where he became a great American hero and one of our founding fathers. That sounds great. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Women of Chateau Lafayette? Yes. Um, I had been doing research for two other American historical books that I'm known for, which are America's First Daughter, which I co-wrote with my dear friend, Laura Kamoy, about Thomas Jefferson and his eldest daughter, Patsy. And we also wrote a book called My Dear Hamilton, which is about Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, the wife of Alexander Hamilton, our first secretary of the treasury and current Broadway star. And um, (laughs) I remember while writing these books, we were both surprised at the important role that the Marquis de Lafayette played in the lives of both of these women. For Patsy Jefferson, he actually saved her when she was a young girl. He helped um, introduce her into French society And then towards the end of her life, when she was really doubting her contributions to the American Revolution and the sacrifices that she'd made, he really invigorated her spirit and helped her make important um, life decisions going forward. He played a very similar role in the life of Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, with whom he was friends when they were young, and uh, she remained friends with him all of her life, even after Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel. I guess that's a spoiler, but you can look it up on Google. (laughs) And um, when he came back to the United States in 1824 for his farewell tour, he made sure to to have Eliza Hamilton in his carriage with him so that she would also get credit from the cheering crowds for the contributions that she made. And it made me very curious, why was Lafayette so helpful and interested in the lives of the women of his comrades from the revolution. Now, part of this is that Lafayette was so young when he came to fight in the revolution that he outlived most of his comrades. And so it would be sort of natural for him to look after their widows or children. But also he had amazing influences uh, back home in the form of women in his life. And the most important woman in his life was Adrienne Lafayette, his wife. And when I learned about their love story, I knew that I had to introduce our French founding mother to my readers and let them read about the incredible true story of courage and bravery um, that comprised their marriage and changed the world. That sounds great. Well, when you have an idea for a new historical novel, what is your research process or does it vary from novel to novel? I think it really does vary from novel to novel in the specifics, but the general approach is 
always the same, which is I get a big picture of what the overarching story is. And then I start filling in some of the details. I usually will use a program. And if um, your readers will be interested, I think I'll name it. It's called Aeon Timeline. And it helps me map out the events of someone's life and the world events that's that are going on around him or her at the time so that I know what's in their minds. And once I have a timeline, um, sort of a skeleton timeline, then I start um, outlining a story. And then, of course, I have to go really delving into the details. For this book, because there were three women, that meant I had to repeat this procedure three times and then weave them all together and make sure that that made a coherent novel all together. And how was that process of weaving everything together? Nightmarish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I, I wrote each of the stories separately, just sort of having faith that I'd be able to weave them together and alternate their points of view. What I didn't realize is that if you do it just in terms of like, okay, well, this chapter is about 4,000 words and now I'm going to break it here and go to the next point of view and that'll be another chapter of about 4,000 words. The, the difficulty is that each character in the story should really be reaching the same point of the story um, at the same time. For example, each of the heroines should sort of reach their darkest moment around the same time. Because if you don't do it that way, then you'll have one chapter where someone is grieving a bitter loss, and then the reader flips to the next chapter, and there's a party at Versailles, <laughs> and the mood is just ruined, and you can't have a reader invest emotionally in the story if you're constantly tugging them back and forth that way. So I had to make sure that each of these story arcs lined up as well, and that was super tricky. <laughs> well, when do you usually start thinking about your next book? Are you thinking about it as you're finishing up the writing of your previous novel? Or do you sometimes sit down to literally a blank page when it's time to start working on a new book? I think for me, it's always that I'm writing one book, researching another and promoting a third. <laughs> so it's always going on at the same time. I always have ideas and they get fleshed out when the muse is bored of whatever I'm writing now. This usually happens to me when I'm at a really difficult part in a novel that's actually due. And that's when I have the greatest idea for a brand new book. Uh, because, of course, I should not be working on it. Well, what was your writing journey that uh, your original writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Well, you know, and I might have told you this before, but it's a good enough story that I'll share it again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I credit my writing career to my grandmother. Um, she liked to go to garage sales and she would always pick up antiques and resell them. And so she would cart me and my cousins and my sister around in the back seat of her Ford Fairlane. It was lime green. I remember it to this day. And um, she would tell me that because I was the oldest, I would be in trouble if any of the kids got out of the car. 
And so, of course, now she'd be arrested for this today, leaving kids in the back of a hot car in the summer. (laughs) But, But, you know, those were different times. So in order to keep my sister and my cousins in the car, I came up with a plan where I would start telling them stories like Scheherazade. And it made me learn how to have cliffhangers when they were getting really (laughs) rambunctious. So that skill served me well. And uh, later in life, I, um, I became a lawyer for about 10 minutes, but I really always wanted to write. And, um, and so I would say that my first impetus towards storytelling was born of pure necessity as a child. <laughs> well, what prompted you to sit down and, you know, where you were working as a lawyer, what prompted you to sit down and start working on that first novel? Do you remember? Um, you know, I, I, I guess, um, I knew that I did not like what I was doing and I knew that I'd always had this sort of childhood dream of telling stories professionally because I actually wrote my first novel when I was 16. It is super bad and it will never <laughs> see the light of day. Uh, but it was great practice to actually write something and finish something and even pitching it to publishers who very wisely did not publish it. Um, and so I think I, I just had that dream in the back of my mind that whole time. And I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, to quit being a lawyer and say, all right, well, I'm going to make a go of it. Now, it took me another 10 years before I was professionally published. So um, it was not an, an overnight success situation by any <laughs> means. But uh, but that was time well spent learning my craft. And what were you doing doing during those ten years? Were you just working odd jobs while you were spending your time yes. writing? Yes, I was. I was working odd jobs. I was writing some newspaper articles um, and uh, writing many failed novels. Gotcha. <laughs> what do you think you learned from those failed novels as you were making your way through those ten years? I think I learned that. Um, the the things that I had learned in law school about what comprise good writing were not very useful in writing a novel. Um, the sort of long... Um, you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sentences really needed to be simplified. I still think I have a tendency to write very long sentences. Uh, But there was one skill that I was able to take from lawyering and that I do use in my books. And that is when it comes to theme, I'm always making an argument in my novels. 
the the story is supporting some premise. And when it comes to an author's note for historical fiction, you often have a lot of people who want to challenge you on the facts. So I make sure that I have an author's note at the end of every book that reads like a closing argument in a trial. <laughs> I lay out all the evidence. I acknowledge the opposing points of view, and then I smash it to bits. Uh, and um, and then I, you know, I hopefully I leave it with the readers, with the big uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I rest my case. <laughs> well, given your writing career and your success, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think I would advise them. Well, I'm going to share the best bit of advice that I ever got when I was learning. Um, and this advice came from Maureen McHugh. And it was, you have to hold two contradictory thoughts in your head at all times. The first being that what you're writing is special and worthwhile and the world needs to read it. And the second thing you have to hold into in your mind is that your story is probably terrible and needs a lot of work. And these things actually work <laughs> to keep you humble, right? It, you have to have faith in your own story that your voice is important and that you have something worthy to say. But how you say it um, is something that you shouldn't be too arrogant about or too sure about because nothing is ever really finished. You can always improve. And I think writers sometimes get a little bit too precious about their own work and they don't want um, they don't want anyone tinkering with it, but that means that they're not necessarily improving. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Nonfiction books, very recently I've been reading the biographies of Francis Perkins and about um, FDR. Fiction-wise, I just finished a novel by Kaia Alderson called Sisters in Arms about um, black women who fought in the first women's uh, black women's auxiliary units in World War II. And it was great. And I think it should be a movie. So I highly recommend it. Um, and of course, the star read of the year for me was a book by my very dear friend, Kate Quinn, called The Rose Code, which has been, uh, rip, you know, burning up the charts. I've, I've heard uh, several interviewees mention it, so I'll have to check that out. <laughs> so where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? I really hope people will visit stephaniedray.com for a couple of reasons. First of all, my website has lots of, um, I wouldn't say bonus material, but um, additional source material on my research, on the women that I write about, on history, but also it has a great link to my monthly newsletter, which is a historical book of the month club. Every month I read a new historical novel and I review it and I give it away to one lucky reader. And I also include other giveaways and prizes and goodies, including deleted scenes from my novels that have never been seen before. So I love to keep in touch with readers that way. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Stephanie Dre, New York Times bestselling writer of the new novel, The Women of Chateau Lafayette. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Stephanie, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thanks so much. Great. 
Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt of the audiobook of the Women of Chateau Lafayette by Stephanie Dre, available from PRH Audio wherever audiobooks are sold. I've almost made it, I think, pedaling my bicycle faster when I see the castle's crenellated tower at the summit. I've ridden past yellowing autumn farmland, past the Preventorium's dormitories for boys, and past the terracotta rooftop houses of the village. And despite blistered feet and scuffed saddle shoes, I'm feeling cocky. As I near the castle proper, I'm no longer worried anyone is going to take what I've carried all this way. Which is probably why I'm so surprised to see Sergeant Travers' old black Citroën parked by the village fountain. Quelle malchance! What shit luck! Sergeant Travers patrols our village every evening on his way home. For some reason, the gendarme is early today, and having stalled out his jalopy, he's got the hood up to repair it. I try to ride past, but he notices and waves me over. My heart sinks as Travers approaches, doffing his policeman's cap, then resting his hand on his holstered pistol. What have we here? Mademoiselle. I pretend to be calm while he peers into my bicycle pannier baskets. Just some supplies from Polaguay. That's the nearest little town, where I bought dried sausage with ration coupons, but I traded on the black market to get sugar, paper for my classroom, and medicine for the doctors at the Preventorium. Black market barters for hard-to-find goods are illegal. I took the risk anyway for a good cause but I had a selfish motive too. One the snooping constable uncovers with a disapproving arch of his bushy brow. Cigarettes? According to our new leader, Marshal Pétain, French women who smoke, not to mention foreigners and unpatriotic school teachers, are to blame for France's defeat. Personally, I think it had more to do with Hitler. Maybe it even had to do with military leaders like Pétain who believed in fairy tales like the stupid Maginot line to keep us safe. I can't say something like that, though. I shouldn't even think something like that about the marshal. The man who saved France in the last war, and as everyone says, the only man who can save us now. But merde, what smug idiots got us into this war. Hitler's panzer divisions rolled past French defenses five months ago. The Allies fled at Dunkirk, leaving 40,000 French soldiers to cover their retreat and hold the Germans back. All for nothing. Eighteen days later, we surrendered to the shock of the world. Like almost everyone else, I was relieved. I thought the fighting would stop and that Henri would come home. But now a swastika is flying over the Eiffel Tower, and France, or what's left of her below the line of demarcation, is neutral while Britain fights on, alone. Almost two million French soldiers are prisoners of war, including Henri. My Henri. Given all that, smoking is the only thing keeping me sane, so the lie comes easily. The cigarettes are for the Baron. The gendarme looks over his shoulder at the castle and says, 
I took the Baron de Lagrange more for a man who prefers a pipe. The Baron is now the acting president of the Preventorium. The Baroness trained as a nurse in the last war and has a knack for organization, but unfortunately, women aren't supposed to run anything now, so her husband got the job. And as the founder of an elite pilot's training school and a senator with connections in the new Vichy government, the Baron is too powerful to question about cigarettes. Trevert knows it and knits those bushy brows. For a moment, I think he'll shrug and walk away. Instead, he sweeps autumn leaves off the low stone wall and leans against it. It gets lonely around here these days, mademoiselle, does it not? Tell me, what does a school teacher with such pretty blue eyes do when class is not in session? I lie about eating chocolates. What does he think? There are 400 sick children to feed at the preventorium, which means growing vegetables, milking cows in the dairy, and helping to raise and butcher pigs. Every day since the war started has been a struggle, but I don't think he cares about that. No, I think the gendarme is after something else when he reaches for my wrist and traces it with his thumb. Your tone is sharp, mademoiselle. You ought to show more respect for an officer of the law. I probably should, considering he could arrest me or seize my ill-gotten goods. But I'm too angry that he's touching me. I don't think he'd dare if I were wearing my engagement ring. It's tucked under my scarf, hanging from my neck on a chain because it kept slipping off a finger that has become, like the rest of me, thinner than before the war. Thinking about it makes me combative. You really want to know what I do when I'm lonely? I kiss the picture of my fiancé praying for his safe return from his prisoner of war camp. That's enough to shame the gendarme, who shrugs like he was just testing me. I wish all French women were so devoted. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.